1: Or Whatever Movies with
0: Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I'm your co-host, Iris, and I'm here with my older brother,
1: Wesley. And today we are discussing a movie from 2023, the long-awaited Harry Poppenheimer and the Infernal Machine. See, because he's like the only one that who can do it, but they're like, he is the chosen one, or he is the boy who lived or whatever. And then he like bursts into this community of magic makers who are doing incredible things and then he's like persecuted and targeted and has affairs and stuff
0: has affairs <laughs> yeah and the infernal
1: machine actually would have been a really good title for indiana jones in the dial of destiny but that title was already used in the indiana jones video game which i didn't play indiana jones and the infernal machine
0: And you watched all of the Christopher Nolan films, of which there are four?
1: I did not watch all of them leading up to this. As Oppenheimer, which is what we're discussing, is not connected to those other movies. However, like a decade ago, I did read The Modern Prometheus, the book on which this movie is based. Oh. Oppenheimer and The Manhattan Project were alone ensconced in this installation in the middle of nowhere by necessity to keep the uh, Manhattan Project a secret as much as possible. And so that book, it didn't really go that angle, but there were many drugs which didn't factor into this movie a lot. And I expected it to be a much more psychedelic madness in the tunnels under Los Alamos than it was. There have been two television shows. Count them, too. There's even one cast member whose name escapes me who was in one of them, which was Manhattan, with parentheses around the A and the dead center, standing for atomic. And then there was nuclear about the family dynamics in Los Alamos, given that all of these scientists were brought in with their entire families, moved to these. Basically, it was like their self-imposed concentration camps and get it nuclear like family and also nuclear.
0: Not to be confused with nuke. Nuku, nuclear, nuke, nuclear? nuclear. You can't even say it so bad you can't <laughs> even say it.
1: Which somebody said in this movie a number of times. Strangely, it wasn't the Matt Damon character.
0: He, oh, you think that the Matt Damon character at least was probably the most primed and positioned to say nuclear? <laughs> yes, so there are a number of properties, but nobody tells a story quite like Christopher Nolan tells a story. So what angle did you would you say he took this?
1: He took this in the loudest, most cinematic, not at all. I mean, this movie had been categorized as a thriller, and I was like, really, a thriller? It's a little bit tense, but it wasn't the madness, the, the descent into madness and regret that I expected it to be. I, I feel like it was a straightforward direction, but it, it pivoted a number of times, but the music didn't pivot. It was pounding and relentless and dramatic even after the A-bomb test when this movie then descended into a courtroom drama of sorts.
0: Descended, I mean, that was kind of a device that they used throughout. And by courtroom drama, you're referring to the Robert Downey Jr. Senate hearing.
1: I did the most prep I could, technically speaking, which is apropos for Christopher Nolan, to get this movie done the right way. We saw it in one of only 19 or 20 screens nationwide, which was 70 millimeter IMAX. And with optimal seating and all that stuff, it's in a single reel. And that reel is 600 pounds. The one at the TCL Chinese Theater on Hollywood Boulevard had to create a special projection room. They had to expand the projection room to play this thing. Uh, Total film, 70 millimeter IMAX is like 11 miles of film. So this thing fired up and it was like being in like a Nickelodeon or something where you can hear the thing, you can hear it ticking up right above our heads, right under the projection booth. It was an optimal viewing experience and man, was it rough rough yeah did you see the the meme of the dude who <laughs> they showed a theater seating map and it's like all full in the back and all full in the third row and the second row has nobody and there's one madman who booked a dead center front row seat for IMAX 70 millimeter <laughs> <laughs> who is just mad definitely man? yeah somebody who went in on drugs right and it, it was almost that experience for what was supposed to be the perfect presentation we got horrible sound mix there was was a Christopher Nolan issue with uh, The Dark Knight Rises where you couldn't understand anything Bane was saying and people are like coming out of the trailer being like, don't watch this movie, you can't understand what Bane is saying. So at the last minute, he cha- he you know uh, worked on the mix to make Bane more intelligible. But I think it was a combination of excessive ambient noise. Every scene, especially in nature, was loud. It had nature sounds and it had, the music was pounding. I don't think it was meant to be distorted and the audio track just couldn't survive. It was like tinny almost. It felt really distorted. It was very distracting. And unfortunately, now I'm concerned because of how difficult it was to understand everybody, uh, Bane, in the original trailer, for definitely how hard it was to understand Kenneth Branagh in Tenet. And now this movie was really difficult to watch for what ended up being a three-hour talkie of sorts that... This is Christopher Nolan's kind of issue, his big problem. Bigger, in this case, is not really always better. So for these giant scenes, you can't even record native dialogue with those IMAX full-frame cameras. The like 15 perf. You have to do like the smaller 70 millimeter in order for to not the cameras to not be so loud. So that's why it switched. I don't know if it did for you, but for me, it switched from full screen to the letterbox for most of the dialogue scenes out of necessity. That wasn't necessarily distracting, but for the considerations they gave for it, the sound to be bad. He wanted optimal sound quality. This supposedly idealized setting for the delivery of this film really, really sucked. For me.
0: So you're saying it was technically rough?
1: Yep. But this one was a full house for a 40s, late 40s era talkie. It was sold out from what I could tell down to the front row. It was important that I see it the right way, which might have been the wrong way.
0: We did not see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning in IMAX. We saw it in laser. And the picture was crystal clear. It was actually a really nice experience. And I felt like this was murkier darker somehow man maybe it's just a murkier darker film with all of the space and energy like the interpretive impressionistic like energy and fire shots but it didn't feel quite as crisp or clear as in mission impossible but otherwise i think was a fairly good cinematic experience it wasn't totally overwhelming and the sound was the the sound was not distracting at all
1: That's good. That's good for you. So keen was Christopher Nolan to make this a proper cinematic experience. Like, hey, what he's trying to do is get people back into the theaters Like, like this is where you need to see this movie. He actually had Kodak develop or they agreed to develop the first ever 70 millimeter IMAX film stock in black and white so he can shoot that stuff without color. Rather than dropping it out, dropping the color out. Um, Yeah. No tricks. He claims, difficult for me to believe, because there's compositing, there's layering. He claims not a single CGI shot in this movie. So all those rocket trails, they filmed multiple practical explosions on high speed and then slowed them down for a much larger scale feeling explosion, composited some of them in, layered them on top of each other to make the uh, ultimate Trinity test uh, look good on film without using CGI. But there are still tricks in place. And as with everything huge and spectacle based this summer, You wonder how much of it was necessary to achieve the effect that, you know, where we're getting uh, things where fire fills the entire frame of the screen. And is it is it necessary? Is it effective?
0: Well, fire is really hard to create virtually.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. And that's the point is does all that hard work to painstakingly create it practically? Does it pay off?
0: Well, just like saying that Tom Cruise does his own stunts, it's great PR.
1: Yeah. Someone sat me down and was like, I don't know anything about this movie. Like, why is this movie important? Why is it a big deal? And my like lame ass response off the cuff was like, it's Christopher Nolan. It's 70 millimeter. <laughs> but that, it, 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 I found it doesn't mean anything. It's great. And, and I'm all one to advocate for the preservation of the cinema, of movie theaters in general, large scale, large scale movie presentations. I don't know that it matters, man.
0: Well, then what does make this movie important, and why are people going out in relative droves to see it? It can't just be the counter-programming in the Barbenheimer
1: weekend. I think, honestly, it might be. Look, we're looking for Christopher Nolan's spectacle, absolutely, but he's burned me. Get it? Get it? Maybe one too many times?
0: Coming off of Tenet, people are going out in droves. What, how?
1: But you loved Tenet, number one. And before what? that, he did uh, Dunkirk, which was massive in scale. But it was just that may have warranted 70 millimeter, I guess. Oppenheimer didn't. But it's kind of what his thing is. I mean, it's not a secret. He's done like six movies now in IMAX 70 millimeter, at least partially. It, it's kind of his thing. But. I didn't really have a response because it's none of the people depicted in this movie who were adults back in you know the 40s were alive. I, I honestly think maybe not the counter programming just as kind of a gimmicky thing, but I do think that this represents moviegoers, the extreme dichotomy. The people who are going to see Barbie are as fanatical as the people who are all fired up about going to see Oppenheimer in 70 millimeter. It's just the two extremes of two very different films and filmmakers. Aesthetics couldn't be more different. It just makes for good. Like you said, PR and, and just to say that you did both to be nice and rounded.
0: I definitely saw there were a number of Ken's donning Barbenheimer shirts Um, (laughs) I didn't exactly see anyone going out in 40s garb, but the pink army was in force. The Barbie Corps was intense, right?
1: I was shocked by how I expected it, but not to this extent. We saw Barbie on Friday, Oppenheimer Saturday morning, and arguably the theaters were just as crowded. But Friday night was overwhelmingly pink. And while there was some pink representing on Saturday, really not so much
0: the pink army was all hung over
1: <laughs> yeah that's what that was kelly ray's Stepping well.
0: in so there was something odd but magical that happened with the pro the counter programming in the barbenheimer weekend and maybe there's some pride that goes into saying that you know that you could be a fan of both or that you know you have the ability to appreciate both i think what oppenheimer has going for it other than christopher nolan and other than 70 millimeter is it's stellar cast oh yeah Left and right, some of the biggest names in entertainment are popping up, and I was really, I was really impressed with how some of these cameos really stole their scenes, really made left their mark on the movie. And then also, even though Killian Murphy isn't what I would, I think what the public would consider a movie star or one that you could expect to open a hundred and fifty million dollar weekend, he is a you know Christopher Nolan mainstay and really, really well suited for this role.
1: I do agree, and he took it very, very seriously. Despite appearing in lots of Christopher Nolan movies and having been around for a long time now, never played a lead at a Christopher Nolan movie. He took it seriously. Matt Damon and Emily Blunt were like, we never saw that dude eat. We never saw Killian eat once in the movie because he got all gaunt and and uh, and <laughs> adhered to this really strict diet. But he's, you know, he's got an interesting face to look at.
0: I was like, we ought to get Killian Murphy and... Robert Downey Jr. and Jason Bateman, we got to get them with a nutritionist because they are <laughs> wasting away. Yeah. And I and they I'm like, do they have, are they working on body images? What's happening here?
1: Who knows, man. But this is what happens. Academics, man, they just kind of like they get all gaunt and they they exhaust the tweed market <laughs> and they and they and like the the tobacco market. It's true.
0: The absent-minded professor archetype is a is a thing. It's a real thing.
1: Absolutely. I've long maintained there's a very fine line between genius and madness in a way. And of course, it can be a curse to to have this faraway gaze that glimpses beyond the mundane everyday into theoretical physics and the horrors that lay within the awesome responsibility they wield because the numbers make sense to them on the chalkboard.
0: The unbearable infiniteness of the universe.
1: Right. It was said that uh, someone asked Einstein some, remote, you know, random question about how how many blah, blah, blahs are in this or how what's the distance between this? And he said, I, I choose not to keep in my mind things that can easily readily be accessed in a book. I he's, mm. It's more theory in his mind. So he doesn't memorize facts.
0: If the portrayal of Einstein and Oppenheimer is accurate, he was really interested in uh, putting around in those later years at Princeton. Yeah. I'm sure the mind was always going, but he seemed content to let the Oppenheimer character bear the responsibility of the Manhattan Project. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about what you talked about, which is basically how this movie made everybody and their brother look old. Oh, yeah. At what point, and have you still, is it yet this point, at what point did you recognize Josh Hartnett?
0: Uh, when I saw his name in the credits?
1: (laughs) Oh man, I was like, "Is that Aaron Sorkin?" I d- I didn't get it.
0: No, seriously, what role did he
1: play? He was the guy who was running the uh, the particle accelerator next door when Oppenheimer moved in. He's like, "Yeah, oh! I got some great I got some great tests I want to try on your thing," and he's like, "Yeah, come on over." The glasses, ginger dude with the glasses, strangely large. Was he? He was huge. Yeah,
0: but then Killian Murphy made Robert Downey Jr. look big, so that's some perspective <laughs> for you. Um, wow. That was Josh Hart. I mean, that was a major role. And I really couldn't tell. Was he friend or foe?
1: I think he was friend. But but in academia, there's only so much you can do. I don't know that he was a friend. He was a colleague. He was a contemporary as much as anyone can be a contemporary to Oppenheimer.
0: OK, because Josh Hartnett's character wanted to support Oppenheimer's theories in his lab. But he also was was frustrated with Oppenheimer's insistence on bringing politics into the institution into the lab. And then at the the random summit in the restaurant where they're moving the flowers around, was he upset?
1: I don't know, man, because I couldn't figure out a lot of what was happening in this movie. <sighs> I feel so underqualified. I really tried to pay attention, but even still, not being qualified in addition to a really rough uh, audio mix, I really had a hard time following. It was, I was about halfway through the movie before I was like, okay, these are absolutely taking place in chronologically.
0: Yes, it was not chronological. And they tried to help us out by like graying up Killian Murphy's hair and.
1: Right? How old are the old people? Are they even older now? Where are we?
0: (laughs) It was (laughs) the nonlinear storytelling was definitely confusing. And I was so I was trying so hard to keep up. But I tell you, about two hours in, I was lulled into this complacency where I was just watching it on a very washer level. And at the end, I didn't want it to end. It was really? really very bizarre. Yeah. At the end, I was like, all right, I'm just like, I'm in this world. I'm very happy that I don't bear the responsibility that these characters bear and was kind of content.
1: Huh. So, what were the stakes? I mean they of course they were in a race against the Nazis this is theoretical they talked about the paranoia of leaks and of spies and of a, a concurrence you know race a, a cold war of sorts even though it wasn't like sort of clearly defined but we had no clue how close these theoretical Nazis were to achieving the thing until they showed evidence of the testing but to get them on their feet and really get this operation the ball moving was all just sort of talk It was trying to beat the Russians and trying to beat his guilt over his affair, I guess, or trying to stave off his madness, you know, that kept him up at night or led him to poison his professor or attempt to and almost poison Niels Bohr. But what were we driving towards?
0: I think that's a really fair question. And I think that it shifts over the course of the film. The initial stakes are are ending the war, which they, in a misguided way, equated with uh, world peace. And then once the deed is done, the war is over, you know, these scientists, for better or for more, most likely worse, have demonstrated to the world that this is possible. Then it became about Oppenheimer's personal redemption. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that he's speaking out against the H-bomb because of his mo- own moral regret and, and conscience that he's developed. Since the dropping of the atomic bombs, and I felt like there was a lot hanging on the one line that he delivers when people are mad at him, especially Emily Blunt, they're like, "Why aren't you defending yourself? Why aren't you fighting back?" And he's like, "I have my reasons," in this like very quiet, understated way. I felt like there was something to that that never quite resolved.
1: Oppenheimer has his reasons. He's not going to share it with us. He's not going to share it with his wife, his ex-wife. Uh, in addition to ex-wife. whether or not, they
0: got divorced.
1: Yeah, he said, my ex-wife, and she came to defend him anyway. He said, Kitty will be here, and Kitty will do the right thing, even though they were divorced. She couldn't tolerate him, but that doesn't mean that she wanted everyone else to step on him.
0: So when they were in the in the living room and she was like throwing glasses and saying, you have to defend yourself, they were already divorced? I don't think so,
1: because I think that was before when they were really in the throes. I'm not sure. They were definitely divorced, man. And this is also diffusing kind of the stakes, defusing, get it? Because it's like a bomb. But also they mm-hmm. were the mm-hmm. question was whether or not they were going to de- detonate the atmosphere And and not only end the war, but end the world. But we know that doesn't happen because the thing starts, you know, four or five years post-war. And I think we know that they are divorced four or five years post-war. So everything that's happening, we kind of know by jumping around. And I get that it's a storytelling device that can be effective, except for this one with sort of muddy stakes. And so it was the idea, I guess, of nuclear proliferation Which didn't end up happening because that was the last time an atomic bomb was dropped in war since. And that's been, what, nearly 80 years. Every single person, including Oppenheimer, who is arguably our protagonist in this movie, is long dead. And so in focusing on his redemption, the saving of his character, of his reputation, I don't know how much people cared. Did the Barbie Corps crowd care what happened to Oppenheimer after the war? We were in at the we were walking across the spectrum because Target is on the far end and there was a, a typical Orange County girl behind us and she was like, Oh my God, I wanna see this movie so bad. I have no idea what it's about, but I totally want to see it.
0: <laughs> wow. Speaking for the masses, it is it defies logic that Christopher Nolan films work. Like, is it just the pure audacity of his filmmaking that makes people want to see his films? Like, I really like films that are paced so well with the audience's intake that they make you feel smart. You're like, I get this. I feel smart because I'm watching it. No, not Christopher Nolan films. If anything, you walk out feeling dumb. Like, I walked out of Tenet being like, did I really miss something here? Right. And Oppenheimer is just as flummoxing. You walk out and you're like, what? And so was Barbie. Barbie was kind of weird. And kind of made me feel dumb in this really ironic way. <laughs> and I would, so, like, how does that work? Like, is there a part of the movie-going audience that wants to feel like movie sophisticates that can sit through three hours of Oppenheimer?
1: I 100% believe there is a contingent of people who th- who think that because they got through it and connected simple dots that they're on a level of understanding that, you know, one of our premier filmmakers uh, is, is hoping that they're on and ho- that he himself is on. Um, Christopher Nolan is undoubtedly a smart guy to be able to handle the tangles that are Inception and Tenet and Oppenheimer is exceptional. The ability to to keep it in his head and tell it in a way that he hopes will be easily, well, at least maybe not easily, but di- digestible. I do feel that Christopher Nolan is a very smart guy, maybe too smart, a little like Oppenheimer, maybe a little like Einstein. I'm not mm. saying he's a genius, mm-hmm. but he mm. might be just a touch too much inside his head.
0: I But I agree. I think that there's a kindred spiritness that Nolan probably finds in Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer was a genius mad scientist theoretician. That being said, he was also an exceptional project manager, you know, and mixed with a borderline toxic amount of ambition. Like there's a reason that J. Robert Oppenheimer specifically was the director of the Manhattan Project because of that mix of ambition, you know, scientific genius and the ability to be a producer.
1: Can you think of another producer at the highest technical level that is a writer, uh, producer, director who brings some of the most ambitious films in history to life, who is also maybe a near genius, but who alienates a lot of the cast and crew that he works with?
0: James Cameron.
1: James Cameron, who who then delivers his movies much more intended for mass audiences for the mainstream in a way that is, I've never been like, I'm too confused to understand Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It just, it's not, <laughs> I mean, even as a kid, it feels like a better execution of convoluted material, where he's got an entire future war in his head that he can deliver piecemeal or in a way that doesn't make you feel dumb. I felt like I was the person who was most receptive, who's like, we gotta trust Christopher Nolan. He's gonna do it because 70 millimeter and i read the book and i still couldn't i definitely didn't feel like i didn't want it to end i was like where are we in this three hour epic because we got the test done they're obviously not going to show the bombings in hiroshima and nagasaki so what are we doing it wasn't quite that harsh but i was waiting for the big pay and the big pay never came
0: So what I think you're talking about is the ebb and flow. It just doesn't have that kind of rhythm to it that gives you the build and release. And so basically you're sustaining this kind of suspended state throughout the entire film. I think the only thing that really provided rhythm in the film for me was the appearance of all of these different characters. Like, when Casey Affleck shows up on screen and is this menacing Soviet hitman, I was like, what is happening? And why is Casey Affleck so terrifying? And with all of Matt Damon's, like, background on the character happening in parallel, I was, like, really afraid for Kelly Murphy's life. Even though I know he wasn't going to, like, to strangle him right there, but he could have. <laughs> when Gary Oldman showed up, come on. It was great. As a truly unsympathetic Truman...
1: Yeah, don't let that crybaby back in here. <laughs>
0: you gotta kind of hate that guy, right? But yeah. that's what it takes. It, it takes that complete callousness to be the president in the time in the time of war. Then there was the Florence Pugh
1: appearances. Yeah, not a lot of not a lot of screen time, but we saw a lot of her.
0: You're saying all of the screen time she did have, she was naked?
1: Pretty much. And, and she committed suicide, the Tatlock character. But did she? Because maybe she was struggling and someone drowned her. But why? Well, it wasn't someone trying to get to Oppenheimer. And I was like, oh, intrigue. But then also I didn't care?
0: <laughs> well, they had he had to bring some sex to this, despite Oppenheimer at first having an affair with Emily Blunt. Their marriage is otherwise pretty chaste. Um, so Florence Pugh, I think she was supposed to be like his true love.
1: I don't know, but I expected it to drive him to more madness. There was some madness. I mean, it did get wild at the end when he was kind of, you know, he wasn't losing it, but he was definitely facing his existential crisis head on with no companionship. But I thought it would be way more. There will be blood on drugs.
0: Yeah. And maybe you just never kind of shook that comparison. All I know is that Oppenheimer was the project manager for the Manhattan Project, the mastermind, the father of the atomic bomb. And afterward, he had conflicting feelings about it, which is completely understandable. And Robert Downey Jr.'s character was kind of butthurt (laughs) and also a bit of a megalomaniac and was like, yeah, I want to kick this guy while he's down because he insulted me in some other public setting. But then he fails in that and and Oppenheimer has some kind of moral resolution that isn't quite clear. That's what I understand.
1: That's the synopsis. Guy builds bomb, feels bad about it. Iron Man kicks him while he's down.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. That's Uh. it.
1: Here's what I figured about this movie. It was a murky presentation for what should have been the best presentation. That was hugely disappointing uh, because I couldn't understand what they were saying literally a lot of the time. I was like, "Oh, there's <laughs> there's Casey Affleck, and how many Europeans are we going to cast to play Americans?" Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Gary Oldman, Florence Pugh, and I was like, "How are their accents doing?" You know, all good actors, <laughs> and I think I don't really think there was a bad note in this movie, and the general most important line of genius is not wisdom as we discussed before how can a man who saw so much be so blind he was the only person who was qualified a good project manager wasn't cut out for what the ultimate result for the you know the consequences of his actions
0: yeah which i don't think any human is really capable of bearing that kind of responsibility
1: man this is an anti-nazi summer
0: on the heels of Dial of Destiny.
1: Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I'm pretty sure there were Nazis in Dead Reckoning Part 1. There were? Yeah. I think the, the, the entity was probably a Nazi, right? No. I'm just saying, for ten, two tent poles, 80 years on, awful lot of Nazis.
0: I mean, because at this point in history, it's a pretty safe bet. If you need a bad guy. <laughs>
1: right? Who's a <the> bad guy? <laughs>
0: It's either a Nazi or you compare them to a Nazi.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying that when Oppenheimer underwhelmed me at least on my expect level of expectation, I wasn't at all surprised.
0: I'd watch Oppenheimer again.
1: I think I would need to watch Oppenheimer again. When I look back on this movie, I, 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 I hear stuff like this and talking about all the important stuff that I couldn't understand what they were saying. And then also some shots of fire and Killian Murphy's face in such dramatic close up that you could see the space between the molecules in the pores of that dude's nose.
0: And so for Killian Murphy's performance, you give it an all right?
1: It was all right. I wanted it to be more, but it's difficult to fault this movie for its ambition. I need to watch it again just because I can't. I'm afraid that I'm just like, eh, on another Christopher Nolan movie. And I'm not. I enjoyed it. I just didn't like the way it was presented to me. And maybe that's not fair.
0: You're like a battered spouse that just keeps coming back for more. It's
1: true. It's probably true. But you're going to give it a good
0: I am. In fact, I feel maybe similarly about Oppenheimer than I did to Tenet. Like, I think this is worth a rewatch. I think that it will continue to give every time I watch it. I I guess I just I didn't take this one as personally, probably because I didn't have to drive down to San Diego to see it. I'll give Kelly Murphy totally I think Emily Blunt will be nominated for an Academy Award I think that this film will be nominated for Best Picture and I think it has a really good chance of winning because it makes the Academy feel smart to vote for it I think that it was wildly ambitious and yet kind of oddly understated and yet it seemed important
1: it wasn't a totally. bomb but was it the bomb
0: no and that's our discussion on Oppenheimer. Check out 200-plus other reviews at orwhatevermovies.com or wherever you get podcasts. 818-835-0473 or whatevermovies at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on Oppenheimer, and we'll see you next time.
1: Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard, Jr. Oh,
0: it. no, it's just my dad.
1: My name is Prince Daniels, Jr. Daniels
0: again. The-
1: on this show, we come to humanize... Athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific Time. On Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric Ass. Miles, are you ready to record our promo for Season 2 of the want Podcast? David, have you ever seen a grown man naked? Miles, we're not here to quote lines from Airplane. We're here to tell people that Season 2 starts August 18th.